Support for The Interchange comes from Schneider Electric, the leader of the digital transformation in energy management and automation. That means microgrids, and Schneider is building more than 300 microgrids all across North America. In fact, it's already built 300 microgrids, and it's building many hundreds more in the coming years. Check out Schneider's microgrid offerings through the link in the show notes. Support for this podcast also comes from PG&E. PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to find out how you can take your transportation fleets electric. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. In Boston, I am Stephen Lacey. Thanks for being here with us. That us includes Shale Khan. He's my co-host and managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Hello, Shale. Here we are, the year ender. Indeed. Hello, Stephen. What a what a year it's been with you. <laughs> the decade ender. Yeah. We've we've spent half the decade on this show. <laughs> is that exciting or is that depressing? <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that. I, I, a little bit of both, perhaps, depending on the topic uh, we cover. It feels right. <laughs> so, the decade ender, that's what I'm calling this. But I put out the call for topic suggestions on Twitter and I got a little bit of flack. Apparently, it's not the end of the decade. Uh, some people say that it actually ends on December 31st, 2020, and the decade begins in 2021. What do you think about that? What does that even mean? What? What? Okay, all right. Is there some technical definition of a decade that I don't know? Because otherwise, obviously... The decade ends on December 31st, 2019, unless there's some like, unless the decade is some scientific term unbeknownst to me. That's ridiculous. No, this is the end of the decade. Okay, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm wrapping, trying to wrap my head around why. So apparently the, the 10th year finishes in 2021. But like, if you're born, you are in the first year of your life. So you might be five days or five weeks, but you have started the first decade of your life as soon as you were born. So you don't start at year one. And I got a bunch of people who pushed back and said the decade isn't closing this year, but I think we're in agreement on this one. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. The <laughs> decade started on January 1st, 2010, and 10 years from that date is December 31st, 2019. I don't even I don't even get the argument to the contrary. Come at me, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, if you want to call us out, please do. But you know what? We don't care because like a lot of other people, we're taking a retrospective on the decade anyway, because hitting the year 2020 feels like it means something. So throughout this episode, we're going to be making our choices for the most important statistic of the decade the most impactful piece of research, either on an industry or on our own perception of an industry or market, the buzz phrase of the decade, the most unexpected twist of the decade, the deal of the decade, and the dark horse trend of the 2020s. Did any of these come easy to you, Shale? Uh, the deal of the decade immediately popped into my head. I immediately knew what the answer was. I feel confident it is the correct answer. That was the only one that came really easy to me. The buzz phrase of the decade, I struggled with a fair bit, are, are, maybe because there are too many buzz phrases. I thought of a lot of buzz, buzz phrases that um, like exemplified a couple years out of this decade. But I think the problem is that buzz phrases come and go faster than 10 years. And so I couldn't, I was having a hard time thinking of one that 
persisted for a decade or the better part of a decade. You? Uh, yeah, I had to put a bit of thought into this only because I'm so biased toward recent years. And so a lot of what I was thinking about came in the last three to four years. And there was all this other stuff happening at the beginning of the decade. So I really had to force myself to stretch back and extend my memory a little bit. Uh, so yeah, it took me it took me a few hours of research to really think through this, but I think I've got a pretty good list here. So let's begin. You are the numbers guy, so we'll start with you, the most important statistic of the decade. All right. The most important statistic of the 2010s in our world is $1 per watt, which is, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, um, that was a goal originally that was set out by the SunShot Initiative, part of the DOE Solar Energy Technologies Program back during the Obama administration, right at the beginning of the decade. So the, the SunShot goal was set in 2011. And basically, SunShot um, was and is a program oriented around providing funding, government funding, for a lot of R&D and some deployment into solar to try to initially just to try to drive down the cost to make solar cost competitive. And so they did a bunch of analysis, discovered that, you know, a dollar a watt is sort of a reasonable benchmark for utility scale solar in the Southwest where it would become cost competitive without any subsidies, just on a a levelized cost basis with, um, with gas that equated to, in their mind, something like six cents a kilowatt hour. Um, And the idea was in 2011 this will be an ambitious goal, probably unreachable, sort of how you're supposed to set these goals um, by 2020. That was what they were trying to do. And then it turned out that solar got way cheaper, way faster than anybody anticipated. And so they claimed mission accomplished in 2017. You could argue that actually it was accomplished even a little bit before that. And I think that almost everything else, at least in the electricity sector that we talk about now, flows from that number. Solar just got very, very cheap this decade. So I choose a dollar a watt. Would you call this the solar decade? Oh, it's an interesting question. I've been thinking about um, I've been thinking about this metaphor for sort of how far along the path we are in, in tackling climate change, which is like a series of hills and mountains, basically. And in electricity, it feels to me like we spent this decade climbing a foothill which was get renewable, you know, the foothill was defined as get renewables cheap enough to be cost competitive on their own. But it's important to think of that as a foothill, not as the mountaintop itself, because the next stage is going from a very small percentage of zero carbon energy to a very large percentage of zero carbon energy. And there's a whole lot that'll have to come along with that. So I don't know whether to, so the the, the past decade, I think was the decade where solar became cheap. But the next couple of decades are going to have to be the ones where solar starts to really dominate new capacity additions globally. So maybe maybe it was a solar decade, but I, if so, then the next couple of decades probably will be too. Yeah, the next decade certainly will be the solar decade because certainly the second half of this decade was dominated by solar. And I have some numbers in front of me only because they feed into my statistic Um, So according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, solar led the decade with the most capacity, and that was due to the later decade surge uh, due to pricing drops. Wait, Um, do you mean solar led the decade in terms of new capacity additions of all technologies? No, just renewables. Ah, so you're basically saying solar beat wind. Yes, exactly. So uh, solar actually drew half of all global investment for renewable energy throughout the decade. And that brings me to my statistic. 
$2.5 trillion. What do you think that $2.5 trillion is? Is that the total amount invested in renewables over the course of the decade? Yes, that is exactly what it is. That's a tally from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Uh, and that $2.5 trillion meant that renewables capacity quadrupled over the last decade globally. That's not including hydropower, by the way. But I bring this up because the actual number we have to hit is pretty extraordinary. We actually have to invest a trillion dollars a year in renewables in order to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that was something that the UN IPCC was saying way back 10 or 11 years ago. And so $2.5 trillion, that's a lot of money. Uh, but we really should have hit $10 trillion this decade. I think that those numbers, I find those numbers in general, I mean, they're interesting and important, certainly. But like, anytime we get up into the trillions, I just have no ability to conceptualize numbers that large. So I just don't even know how to think about the difference between $2.5 trillion over the course of a decade and a trillion dollars a year. Obviously, it's more, but like... I, I don't know. I, I struggle to take anything meaningful from numbers that large. I don't know about you. Well, I would be lying if I said it wasn't abstract to me. I think for anything, when it comes to you know global GDP or uh, national debt or renewable energy investment, when you get up into those numbers, it's hard to fathom. But I certainly know they're really big and we're not hitting them and we're not on pace to do what we need to do in just renewable energy alone, let alone all the other sectors we've been recently focusing on that are even more difficult to tackle. And I remember back in 2008, in the middle of 2008, so this was just before the decade we're talking about began, I sat down with Michael Liebrich at the Renewable Energy Finance Forum, and he talked about the numbers, which they had been tracking since 2003, I believe. And we had hit $100 billion that year in global investment. And it was a really big number. But he at that time brought out the UN numbers and he said, well, the UN says we need to hit a trillion dollars a year over the next decade. And I'm not sure if we can get there. I think we can get there. He was not willing to make a prediction, but he thought it was certainly possible. And the numbers we've seen since then have been really impressive, well over you know $300 billion a year, but they are certainly not at the scale that we hoped back in 2008 when we were um, you know, emerging into the 2009-2010 timeframe. So uh, it's a story from just before the turn of the decade that I think is important given the numbers we have now. Okay, the most impactful piece of research. Well, okay, this one's a tough one for me because it's like choosing amongst my children. So I struggle with this one. And in fact, I struggled with it so much that I was unable to come up with a single piece of research that I could hang my hat on here. And instead- Well, hold on. I, <laughs> don't don't just throw out a bunch because I have a feeling we might pick some of the same ones. So you can't just preempt me. Well, I'm not throwing out a bunch of random pieces of research. I was going to give credit to a single source of research okay. that I feel okay. like has been consistently putting out really interesting and valuable stuff. Is that acceptable? Will we allow it? Yeah, but if it's not Wood McKenzie GTM research, then I don't know. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, don't know. I might get fired from this podcast. <laughs> sure, of course. That goes that goes unspoken. Uh, okay, so in addition to Wood McKenzie Power and Renewables, who consistently puts out the best research in the business, um, I wanted to give a shout out to Rocky Mountain Institute because yes. I was looking back over the course of the decade and I was basically trying to figure out, all right, what are the pieces of research that I can easily remember 
over the years and that I still think about periodically because they made some point that seemed relevant. And a lot of it came from RMI. I think RMI has done a really good job of bridging this divide between wonky academic type research and really actionable practical research. And so, you know, they put out stuff like the economics of grid defection, which started this whole conversation around grid defection. Then they kind of supplemented it with the economics of load defection when they realized that grid defection wasn't probably going to be a big thing. But then they started talking about load defection. They did some of what I thought was the more interesting early research on the various value streams for batteries on the grid, right? They identified I can't remember, it was 13 or 16 different potential value streams and outlined them individually, particularly in the past couple of years. They've been putting out a whole variety of interesting stuff on utility business models, on energy transition in general. And then they just published a piece um, maybe a month ago that I think is really good, which is very high level, but it's setting out seven challenges for the energy transition. And I'll just read out the seven challenges. We should talk about them another time. But Number one is making emissions visible. Um, I'll come back to that later. The second is tripling energy productivity gains, which is a sort of a good way to talk about energy efficiency, actually. Uh, number three is electrifying with renewables. That one we probably talk about the most here. Number four is reinventing cities. And this is one that I've been on a big tirade about for a while. We need to think about urbanization in the context of climate change and climate change in the context of urbanization. Number five, boosting clean technology. Number six, redesigning industry. And number seven, securing a, a swift and fair transition. And I just agree with every single one of those. I think those are those are big challenges. They're not all completely obvious. Um, and so, I, you know, kudos to Rocky Mountain Institute for, for keeping me interested for a decade. I like this choice so much for a variety of reasons. One being that RMI is pretty rigorous in their analysis, so they just have really good analysts, but they also have a unique ability to craft a story and to be a couple steps ahead of the current trends. And so they're, they're able to drive narratives with their research that's really effective. And they've always been pretty good at that. And as they've expanded, I think they've gotten even better. All right. What's your choice? Well, I thought you were actually going to choose this one. I chose the 2012 National Renewable Energy Renewable Electricity Futures Study. And this was based off of research that was conducted in 2009 and 2010. The report was released, I think, in 2012. It was a major piece of research that synthesized a lot of other pieces of research on uh, renewable energy costs, on integration challenges, on uh, on the, the electricity markets and how they worked. And this is using ancient data, right? I mean, this is using data from 2009 and 2010. You think about how expensive solar and wind and other renewables were at that time and batteries were. Uh, but they found that you could feasibly, uh, technically and, and economically get 80% renewable generation nationally. Um, and the, the, it was a pretty groundbreaking study and it influenced a lot of the policies that subsequently came focused on huge amounts of renewable energy. So to me, this was highly influential and guided a lot of research afterward as well on 100% renewable energy, on um, 100% clean. It, it, it changed the narrative in politically and in the research world. Hmm. That's interesting. I have spent more time with some of the um, subsequent research that NREL has done around that topic than I ever did with that original study. So I hadn't even thought about it 
actually. But yeah, I mean, I can I can definitely see the case for that. Yeah, and secondarily, I thought about the Mark Jacobson wind, water, solar study that uh, despite some of the disputes around his assumptions and his flaws as a communicator and the way he talks to detractors, it did influence this massive push for 100% policies uh, from the Green New Deal on down to states. And that was hugely influential in the latter half of the decade. Uh, but I really think it started with this uh, renewable electricity futures study. Yeah, I think I think there actually is a decent case that if we're asking, if the question is the most influential piece of research in the decade, uh, Mark Jacobson's work actually probably should be up there. It has been really influential yeah. and controversial, which makes it even more influential potentially. Um, but uh, yeah, either way, I, I like those picks. Okay, so buzz phrase of the decade you had some difficulty with this one. Yeah, I struggled with this one. Like the first thing that came to my mind was blockchain, right? Because it was like of the buzziest of the phrases. Yeah, but it didn't last, right? But blockchain had like a year and a half long moment in the sun. It just wasn't the buzz phrase of the decade. So then I thought about giving giving ourselves a bit of credit here. I thought about the term grid edge, um, which we invented or popularized anyway at GTM back right around the beginning of the decade. And I think, you know, is sort of hitting the the twilight of its usefulness now, in my opinion. Um, it was born out of an evolution of what had been smart grid, which was maybe the buzz phrase of the last decade, but was smart grid was kind of losing its luster and there was a whole new set of stuff behind the meter that was becoming interesting. And so it wasn't really capturing it. So we, we started talking about grid edge and encompassing some of the smart grid technologies, plus all the behind the meter stuff, and then a bunch of application layers and business model questions. And I think it was super useful and became very influential. Um, and it is, is now a time to sort of move on to the next thing, but, you know, didn't want to, I guess I just did, but I, I didn't want to spend the whole time talking about a term we came up with at GTM. So anyway, I struggled. Fair, what did you come though. up with? Well, I first of all, I think that the use of grid edge is fair because sure, we 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 want to be careful and, and not give ourselves too much credit, but I do think grid edge is should be at the top of the list because it's used everywhere in the industry now in place of smart grid. So I have this long list here and I'll just run through them because many of them overlap with yours and then I'll just pick one of my top ones. So I've got grid edge, smart grid, blockchain, internet of things, which is actually a term from the 90s, but it was really used a lot in the um, in this decade. Big data, artificial intelligence, intelligent devices, peer-to-peer, utility death spiral, customer engagement, green, sustainable, uh, the war on coal, energy independence, resiliency, and disruption. That's my long list of things. <laughs> that is incredibly broad. I mean, it's it's like some things that are super specific to this sector. Then you've got, what did you, you put artificial intelligence in there, which probably is the term of the decade, but not just in energy or climate circles. That's probably like the tech one. Same thing with IoT. Um, disruption. Good God. I'll never, never pick that one. <laughs> if, if I ever use disruption, it'll be uh, to my detriment. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, I think you, you were probably landing in a similar place that I was, which was there wasn't a single defining term or buzz phrase, but we apparently have a lot of them based on what you just said. Yeah. If I had to choose one, it's a phrase that I think doesn't accurately reflect what it is or that it's so overly broad there are a lot of different definitions and if that's the case i have to pick big data 
I, I mean, people use the term big data like they use viral. Oh, my tweet got 100 retweets. It went viral. Um, that is definitely not the definition of viral, just like relatively small data sets are not big data. And I think anytime you sort of have a stream of information, you people just call it big data. The conversation probably has gotten more concise in tech journalism over time, but I feel like it's a often misused term. I think actually we're using it less now for good reason, which is the focus is is not so much these days on the on the big data itself. Kind of doesn't matter how big your data is. The focus is on what do you do with that data? And so now the buzz phrases of today are machine learning and artificial intelligence, which are both like things you can do with big data. Or it's just data because everything is big data now. Speaking of buzz phrases. Here are a few. Decarbonization, decentralization, digitalization. Those are three that have defined the decade, and they're buzz phrases for a reason, uh, and that's because they are guiding the future of the energy transition, and Schneider Electric is riding that energy transition by using those tenants for its microgrid development. Schneider is totally committed to developing microgrids for resiliency and reducing costs at buildings, and uh, if you want to find out more about Schneider's wide range of offerings for building out these microgrids, follow the link in the show notes. If you are a company, an organization, a university, whatever, and you have big fleets of vehicles and you're in Northern California, well, you should turn to PG&E because they have the resources that you need to get your fleets electrified. They've got the infrastructure know-how and they have the information about rates and everything else that you'll need to know. And it is cost-effective now. And if you want to be part of this transition in California toward 5 million zero-emission vehicles, well, you probably need to get electrified. Between now, 2020 and 2030, it is happening and you've got to move. And PG&E has a guidebook to help you out. Download your free copy at pge.com slash gtmev. And we now come to do 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 the most unexpected twist of the decade. Well, surprise me. <laughs> I mean, for me, if you were sitting in 2010, the thing that probably would it was a, a big deal and would have been almost impossible to predict um, was the rise and fall of Sun Edison. I would say, which is, I mean, uh-huh. so the the backstory for folks. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think this has gone largely forgotten by history. So Sun Edison was 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 founded by a, a couple people, Jiggershaw, amongst them Claire Boydo Johnson um, and Brian Armstrong, who were an independent solar developer pioneering the PPA model, etc. Then there was this company company called MEMC, which was a public company, semiconductor company, who made semiconductor wafers and wanted to get into the solar business. So MEMC bought Sun Edison in 2009, so right before the turn of the decade, which was a weird thing to do at the time because they were a wafer maker. So it was a downstream integration play, but they were skipping steps in the middle because they didn't actually make solar modules. They didn't make panels. But they bought Sun Edison. It turned out in some ways to be a very prescient move because then the wafer business and the the semiconductor business kind of went flat and the solar downstream business gained all the momentum. And so ultimately, MEMC rebranded as Sun Edison. And that's how there became a public company called Sun Edison. Then, of course, uh, Sun Edison got bigger and bigger and bigger ambitions under the CEO, Majitila. 
started calling itself the first renewable super major, made like dozens of different moves. They're getting into off-grid solar. They were trying to build like a five gigawatt manufacturing plant in Saudi Arabia. They were in India. They were, you know, they bought first wind. They're getting into wind. They were, you know, just like everything. They're doing everything. They got into electric vehicles, even. They got into like residential batteries, anything they were getting into. And then of course there was this like boom. And for a minute, it looked like they were a $10 billion company. And then crash and they went bankrupt. And I don't think there's any world in which at the beginning of the decade, I would have predicted any part of that turn of events. Uh, For me, the unexpected and rather dark twist of the decade was the rot inside our political system. Um, Now, remember back to when 2009 came to a close, we were poised to pass some big agreement at Copenhagen. Uh, almost exactly, t- or exactly ten years ago, uh, and we were also poised to pass carbon cap and trade legislation in the U.S., and it all fell apart. And as 2019 comes to a close, the Madrid climate talks ended in failure with very little new commitments. Um, the U.S. political system is eating itself from the inside so thoroughly. There's zero chance that we can pull something with any impact together on a national scale. Even under, say, a Democratic president, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of resistance from Republicans. But I, I think I'm more cynical now because, like, the the, the forces, like the underlying forces of disinformation uh, that make ambitious collective policy on anything impossible, and it's only going to get worse. I mean, just think about how promising social media felt, in, for example, in 2009, 2010, and think about how much it's metastasized the the cancer of disinformation and polarization inside the political system. I just feel very differently about our prospects for bold solutions than I did a decade ago. And that kind of saddens me. Oh, man, that's depressing. And I don't agree, actually. I mean, hey, look, like the the rot in the U.S. political system, I'm not going to debate that with you. But um, actually, can we use that to segue into the our favorite deal of the decade? Because mine is related. Sure. What a pivot. Okay. Let's, let's do it. Deal of the decade, the Paris Climate Accords. Obviously. It's a, the Paris was a huge deal, right? We, we got, I mean, I mean, think about how hard it is to get collective action on something like climate change and to get, we got, we ended up with, I think we have 195 members that countries that have signed the agreement, 187 have become party to it. Um, it's, you know, people can argue about whether it's ambitious enough, but, uh, it's meaningful. It was the first really big, meaningful global climate action. It happened during the 2010s. Um, and I mean, we'll see where it goes, right? Like the, the current news as of today is a little bit frustrating because we just came out of, um, COP25, which was this year. And I think the general, outlook was that it was a it, it we didn't accomplish much unfortunately and that uh, in large part that was because the US Brazil and Australia basically blocked a deal um so you know the the US has announced its intention to pull out of the Paris climate accords uh so it, you know it's not it, we're not done here but first of all Paris climate accords clearly the deal of the decade from a climate change perspective and second of all i'm still pretty optimistic actually i mean first of all we have we haven't actually pulled out of Paris yet, and so it sort of depends on what happens in the election, because the date for us to pull out is literally the day after uh, the next term of whoever whoever is president starts. Uh, and also, I just think that 
I don't know. I, I have I have this feeling that there is this upwelling right now of um, climate change concern in the United States, particularly amongst younger people, that I think is secular and going to continue to build. And um, I, I think the next decade we're going to take pretty big action around climate change, maybe at the federal policy level, depending on what happens in Washington. But even if not at the federal policy level, I still think the U.S. is going to come back around and be a, a good actor. And meanwhile, you have you know places like Europe with the um, European Green Deal, which is setting Europe out to be the first carbon neutral continent by 2050. Um, so we're just going to like follow in the coattails, I think, of Europe. And anyway, so I've, I've, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Well, I, I can't say you've changed my cynicism, but uh, I think our listeners will appreciate the, the optimism. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems to me that catastrophe is the only thing that can move the needle. And I'll actually come back to that uh, a little bit later in the show. Let me first pick my deal of the decade. Do you remember after the financial crisis when Tesla was in severe, dire straits, uh, it was pre-IPO, they were running out of money, uh, Elon Musk had to inject millions of dollars of his own money again in order to make payroll. Do you remember who swooped in to save Tesla? Uh, the federal government in the form of a loan guarantee? Ah, well, one of the saviors was the federal government. And in fact, the story that Musk later told was the federal government was recognized as the entity that saved Tesla. But in fact, it was also uh, 2009 when Daimler swept in acquired a 10% stake in Tesla, kept it afloat, and prepared it for its IPO and later cashed out its stake. Um, and, and Musk said a few years later that that was the moment that they revived the company and they were basically out of cash. They could have shut down the next day or within days. Uh, but you are correct about the DOE loan guarantee as well. It was a $465 million loan guarantee, I think. And that certainly was crucial for helping Tesla expand its factory and become the car company it is today. And I'm picking this because Tesla, for whatever whatever you think about Musk, whatever you think about whether he can pull off his vision, they are definitely the most influential company of the decade. I mean, hands down, they have influenced an entire industry in stationary storage and, uh, and in, in uh, electric vehicles. And I do not think we can undersell that one. Yeah, that's a good one. I didn't know that. I I feel like I've heard the Daimler thing, but I, I had forgotten it. So um, well reminded. Yeah. Musk said uh, later it was the last hour of the last day that it was possible to save the company. So who would have known had Daimler not stepped in? Maybe we wouldn't have had the Tesla we know or the storage or EV market that we know. Finally, the dark horse trend of the 2020s. What trend is going to creep up on us and have an outsized impact, Shale? Well, my first thought was the resurgence of the hydrogen economy. Um, but I actually don't think, I mean, look, we could, we could debate whether it's real or not. I think we're going to spend a lot of time in the 2020s talking about hydrogen. There's going to be a lot of activities around hydrogen in the same way that there was around batteries, for example, in the 2010s. But I actually don't think that's a dark horse. Um, I think basically everybody right now agrees that we're going to spend a lot of time looking at hydrogen in the next decade. And then you could debate whether or not it's going to work. 
Um, so anyway, that's, I think, a trend of the 2020s, but maybe not a dark horse trend. So I will give you a dark horse trend. Um, carbon transparency. That is my dark horse trend. Specifically- What does that mean? Incre- a, a push across multiple sectors for us to get better visibility into the carbon impact of things we do and things that we buy. Um, you can think about, imagine if when you decide to order a package from Amazon, you find out in real time how much carbon that's going to emit in the process of delivery. Or imagine if on products, um, in the same way that on food right now, we have nutritional information, there was carbon information. Um, you can, you can you sort of draw this into the corporate world as well. You know, I think that I've been thinking about all these this this movement amongst f- actors who are voluntarily committing to um, going green in one way or another, and I think they're going to want one easier ways to measure that, and two they're going to want credit when they're better. So the ones who are better are going to want to push for this kind of transparency in the same way that like the health food industry really supports all the nutritional information. I, I think that transparency around embodied carbon and carbon impacts of stuff we do and buy is going to turn out to be actually a really important lever in inducing action to mitigate climate change. Oh, I love this one. And uh, one thing you said feeds into our earlier segment on buzzwords. You said as companies go green, and I feel like that is a very difficult to define word. It's a feel-good word. People use it for a reason, but it doesn't do anything to explain what companies are doing. I love carbon transparency. She's saying that companies are going carbon transparent. It feels very descriptive to me. Um, I like this in place of sustainability or green. Yeah. Doesn't it conjure up more concrete images? It's just a good phrase. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I I don't know. We'll see. Um, I think think there's a ability now to track uh, carbon impacts of stuff better than there was. And I think people are going to increasingly be concerned about, I mean, I certainly, so, uh, you know, when I fly, when I order stuff off Amazon, like I want to know. Um, and then I want an easy way or an automated way to do something about it. So maybe, you know, the other knock on effect could be a resurgence in the carbon offset world, which I think is possible as well. But, uh, you know, at a minimum, let's start with transparency. Yep. I really like this one awesome choice because I'm I totally agree with it I'm not sure um, mine is a dark horse in the traditional sense but it certainly is dark I think as much as anything extreme weather is going to move the needle on tech deployment and policy in in clean energy particularly in the second half of the decade so so there's a very clear connection between how people feel about the threat of climate change and if they experience extreme weather personally. And when it happens to them, the polling very clearly shows an increase in understanding of climate change. And we talked about this in our previous episode. And as I thought more about your vision of this culture of resilience that you outlined uh, as a driver of you know infrastructure improvements and clean energy, the more it made sense to me. You also pointed out the, there's an extreme uptick in searches for generators. Uh, and I know also Energy Sage saw a big increase in battery and solar quotes in California after the wildfires. So extreme weather is going to get nothing but worse, and its influence on belief and behavior is really clear. So I think it'll become much more of a catalyst for the energy transition. And that's a little bit dark because I, I feel the same way about 
policy change. Here in the U.S., the thing that could move the needle is probably some major catastrophe happening in combination with some other factors. But I I do think that will be the major catalyst. Mm. You're headed into the 2020s with a kind of a a dark outlook, huh? Very much so. Yeah, Yeah. I am. I'm sorry, everybody. (laughs) But I I, I think you're, you're really capturing my spirit at the moment. So would you say that you were feeling more optimistic than pessimistic as you looked back over the decade? On balance, yeah. I would say on balance, more optimistic than pessimistic. Well, I'm sure everyone out there will appreciate your optimism going into the next year. So hopefully that'll improve our show topics. We won't get too dark. We'll get dark when we need to be. And that is going to wrap the year. And for those of us measuring differently, a wrap of the decade. Um, Thank you to everyone who has followed this show. We started it right in the middle of the decade in 2014. And we are eternally grateful for your support and listenership. If you want to show us some end-of-year love, hook us up with a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Spotify is also doing these year-end wrap-ups you might have seen. Um, Maybe tweet out the podcast listening trends if we made the list. That's a good way to spread the word. The Interchange is a co-production of Green Tech Media and PostScript Audio. Shiel Khan is my co-host. It's produced and edited by me and Daniel Waldorf. Have a wonderful holiday season, everyone. We'll catch you in the beginning of the year. 